You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Who doesn't love a hula hooping Santa Claus? Right? <laughs> I, you would be absolutely shocked at how many electronic versions of hula hooping Santa Clauses exist on the market. More than one? Yes. More than three? Yes. More than five? Yes. I found at least more than five variations, one of which Santa was doing this with hula hoops. Um, needless to say, that's really neither here nor there, just uh, fantasy tidbit. Children, you may be dismissed for children's church. big crowd today. Pray for your children's church workers. (laughs) That's significant. That is significant. That's wonderful, though. All right. As they are going down to learn about Christmas at their age level, we are going to learn about Christmas at our age level. Um, And uh, we'll start by talking about Santa, right? Because that's where all good Christmas stories start. When you guys were little, did you ever sit on Santa's lap? Anybody? Yeah? Um, Did you ever write him a letter asking for something specific? Did you mail it to the North Pole? No? Did did mom and dad mail it to the North Pole? Um, Did you promise to be good, at least in my letters? Um, I would write them every year, and I would say, Dear Santa, I would like, you know, whatever it was that I was wanting for the year Um, I have been very good this year, and I would omit the portions of the year in which I had not been good, but I listed the portions of the year in which I had been very good. So it would read something like, Dear Santa, I would like, whatever, you know, a Nintendo for Christmas. Um, And I have been so good this year. I fed the dog, and I did my homework. I didn't list how many times, but I did. I was truthful. I did do my homework at least once. And, you know, I listed a handful of things that I did well, and then I signed off on it, and I hoped that he would not find out all of the ways in which I had not been good. And uh, and then in sending off the letter, I had hoped that I would get something that I had been wanting for Christmas. So I would wait between the time that the letter was written and the time Christmas morning would roll around. I would wait and hope that what I had wanted would be under the tree. Now, sometimes that was true and sometimes it wasn't. Um, and, uh, and that was how Christmas went in my family. But as I've gotten older and my theology has developed and my brain and heart have grown more akin to the traditions of Scripture, I have begun to realize that Christmas is not about Santa Claus. That shocked myself when I was younger. Um, to this day, I can remember the moment that I realized Christmas was about Jesus. Christmas was not about Santa Claus. In fact, just as a little tidbit, um, this is St. Nick. This is good old St. Nicholas. He was born in 270 A.D. He died in 343 A.D., really, really close to the time of Jesus, right? Only a few hundred years removed. His life was lived 
as one that served the poor. His entire life was one that would be characterized by giving away what he had, acts of charity, secret gift giving, and um, above all else, um, defending the truth in Scripture. The gift giving was secondary. It was just the way by which he could love people. But his biggest passion, St. Nick, was preaching the gospel and making sure no heresy worked its way into the minds and the hearts of the people that he encountered. For that reason, St. Nick is my hero because uh, he loved the gospel more than he loved anything else. Now, the one thing that St. Nick understood deeply is that Christmas was not about gift giving. It was about a promise. Christmas is about a promise that God made to the world in Genesis. This is not necessarily what you would think as the most Christmassy picture, okay? There's dirty feet and a snake, but I want to explain this to you. And um, Or my Sunday school kids, did they go downstairs? Yeah? Oh, I taught them a fancy word. I thought they were going to help me out with it this morning, but that's okay. I taught them this fancy word. See, in, in the scriptures, Christmas is about this promise that God makes to people. And the promise does not occur when you flip the page to the New Testament. The promise occurs when you open the Bible to the book of Genesis. And I taught, um, I taught my Sunday school class a fancy word called proto-evangelon, which basically means the first gospel. And you want to know what? They're smart kids in my Sunday school class, very smart kids in my Sunday school class. I wrote this big word on the board, and they sounded it out fairly well. And then I said, what does it mean? And I gave them no clues, Okay. Um, I just put the word on the board. I said, tell me what this word means. And they looked at it, and they thought, well, okay. And so they kind of looked at the word evangelon, and it kind of looked like evangelize. And so they kind of sounded it out, and they got the idea that it was gospel-related. And I was like, wow, that's smart. And I said, okay, it's, it means the first gospel. Where would we find that? And they said, the Bible. <laughs> I said, yes, could you be more specific? And one of them said, Genesis. And I, my jaw just literally hit the ground. I just was not expecting that kind of response. We have smart children who love the word and are being taught well, not just by me, uh, kind of haphazard sometimes, but by great people in this church that are teaching the Bible. Thank you for teaching the children. They figured out that the first gospel is actually in the book of Genesis. So we have the story of Adam and Eve, right? And Adam and Eve are created by God, and they are the pinnacle of the creation, and God loved them, and they were lovely because he loved them, okay? That's how my daughter's children's Bible phrases it, and they were in wonderful communion with God until one day Satan disguised himself as a snake and entered into the garden and started speaking lies into the heart of Adam and Eve, and because of that, and they believed the lies, they partook of a fruit they were not supposed to partake in, and they sinned and fell before God. So now we have Adam and Eve in sin, and God's a holy God, and there's this problem, and so God sits down with his children like he does with all good parents who sit down with their children when they do something they shouldn't do, and they say, tell me what just happened here. Can we dialogue about the sin that is in your life? That's what God did with Adam and Eve, and immediately Adam said, the woman you gave me made me eat the fruit, and Eve said, that snake talked to me and told me to eat the fruit, and the blame game was going around, and God said, wait a minute, let me get to the heart of the matter is, the heart of the matter is y'all sinned, and there need to be some repercussions. So out of the garden you go, childbearing is going to be difficult. You're going to have to work hard for your labor. He doled out some repercussions. And then he doled out some repercussions to the adversary of our souls, right? 
So in Genesis chapter 3, he starts talking to the enemy of our souls. And it says this in Genesis 3.15. This is the proto-evangelon, the first gospel. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring, the lineage of mankind. He, meaning the one who is to come, Jesus the Messiah, he will crush your head, serpent, and you will just strike at his heel. This is the first gospel. This is the very first time in Scripture we get the picture that even though there is sin in the world, God says, enough. I want to reconcile the world, and I'm going to work out a plan for it. One day I will send someone who will crush the head of the adversary of our souls permanently. In doing so, he'll get struck on the heel. It's not a fatal blow, and he'll live. But the adversary of our souls will not. His head will be crushed, and he will have no more power. That's why this is a Christmas picture, because it shows us what Jesus came to do. It shows us the gospel picture that Jesus comes into our lives and says, no more. No more does the adversary have power or authority over you. I will crush him for you. The very first gospel. And it's a promise from the first pages of scripture that one day God would send a savior to save the world, to reconcile sinners to him with grace and love and hope and mercy. That one day the curse of sin would be broken and we wouldn't be like Adam and Eve who run away from God when we sin. But instead, we can run to God when we've sinned, knowing that we can be received and loved and welcomed and soothed and forgiven. And so many years before Jesus' birth, he made this promise. Many, many more years before Jesus' birth, he continued to make promises. If you receive the email that I send out during the course of the week, I shared um, a little bit of my musings about understanding the Old Testament uh, using a hashtag phrase, gospel according to. Okay? It's my way of keeping track, my personal way of marking in my scripture, the gospel according to Isaiah. So when I find Isaiah talking about Jesus, I hashtag it in my digital Bible, gospel according to. And then I can come back and find all of these mentions of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. And the list is growing quite extensive, and I shared some in my email this week. Um, it is a beautiful picture. Page after page after page in the Old Testament, God reiterates this promise. I am sending a Messiah for you. I will crush Satan. Your sins will be forgiven. I promise we will work this out. Bear with me. I will solve this. And so we work our way down through time, and we've read in Scripture the past couple weeks that Jesus was born, and the angels testified to it, and the shepherds testified to it, and the wise men testified to it, and Mary and Joseph were just kind of in the whirlwind of it, experiencing it. And in all of this, at some point, God spoke to a single man in Scripture, and he said, listen, I've got something really exciting to tell you. And he made a promise to one man, a very specific promise, that that one man would personally get to hold the baby Jesus before he passed away. That he knew that all of Scripture pointed to this moment, and that instead of dying before seeing that moment, he would get to see that moment in his own hands. And he would get to hold that baby Jesus and see his Savior with his own eyes before he passed away. He knew because God promised to him at some point in his life, he could behold salvation, the one he'd waited for so long. That's the story we're going to read this morning. If you will flip with me to, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 2. 
We're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 38. And it says this. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was named Jesus. The name was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when it came time for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, You are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled about what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. This is the word of the Lord this morning. This might not be your most typical Christmas passage. I think in Advent sometimes Simeon gets skipped over. But Advent is the season of waiting, right? And who waits longer than at some point in Simeon's life, God told him, guess what, you're going to get to see the Messiah before you die. And then day after day, he's just like, I love God and I'm waiting, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, waiting to see the Messiah, waiting to see this baby Jesus that's coming. Let's break this down verse by verse, okay? Um, There's Jesus' name for you. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised and called Jesus. It was the name that was given to him by the angel. Um, Why are we talking about Jesus' circumcision? Why is this important to mention in this birth narrative? Um, We need to understand that there are a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. We've just briefly, barely touched the surface on that so far. But one of the things that we know about Jesus is that he would be born under the law, okay? He would be born of a virgin, and he would be born under the law to live in the covenant law like a Jewish person would so that he could relate to the people that he was coming to relate to. In Galatians 4, it says this, But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so he could redeem those under the law, and that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters of Christ. See, Jesus, his circumcision is important because that was a sign of the covenant, a sign of being part of God's people. And so he took that sign as part of the family line, saying, I'm part of the family of God. And then we have his name. Why is it important that they reiterate what his name was? Well, um, the angel said his name will be Jesus, and Mary and Joseph didn't really want to go against the angel, okay? So they said his name will be Jesus, and this is important because according to Acts 4, 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The naming of Jesus is important because that is the name that all people will look to for salvation. It is the name that has the power and the honor and the glory attributed to it. The naming of Jesus is the moment in which we recognize this little baby really is the one. This little baby is the one that will grow up and die for our sins. This little baby is Jesus, Emmanuel, with us, God wrapped in flesh, come to save us from our sins. This is important. Then after they've named the baby, they, uh, they go on to dedicate their child. Like all good parents in the church, right? You bring your child to dedicate them before the Lord. So uh, you just want to commit your child to the Lord. How many of you have dedicated your children to the Lord? Right? How many of you were dedicated at some point? Right? Yeah. This is kind of Christian tradition. Um, it's a beautiful thing that we do in the church. This is kind of what they did back then too. This is a long-standing tradition. The law spoke about this, okay? So it says this. When the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I want to point out a phrase to you that we'll skip over in every common day reading of this. They brought him up to Jerusalem, okay? The phrase uh, took him up or brought him up, it literally means to take him upward, just like it sounds. It's not like, hey, we're going down to town or, hey, we're going up to Anchorage. They are literally talking not about a change in elevation because from where they were going, they were actually descending in elevation, but any time Jews would go to Jerusalem or to the temple and elevate in the steps up towards the temple, they would say, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to church because they recognized they were ascending closer to God into their proximity. So we are going up into God's presence. So this could be read like this. They brought him up into God's presence to present him to the Lord. And then they... They went through their purification. See, in the law of uh, Moses, all of the complement of the law, so many laws, one of the things that they had to do was a purification. After you had a baby, there was a process by which you would purify yourself and your family so that you could then be clean and enter into the presence of the Lord. The purification contains three elements. Um, This is kind of important. Otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily share this nugget with you. The first element of the purification is Mary's purification, okay? Um, Because she had a baby and there's all kinds of stuff involved with having a baby, the law says you need to set time aside so that you can be clean before the people, okay? So after that time had passed, then she would offer a sacrifice at the Nicanor Gate in the court of the woman. So she would have to go pass some time on amongst herself, and then go and offer a specific sacrifice to cleanse herself, okay, before the Lord. The second portion of, rede- uh, of the purification is the redemption of the firstborn son. You can read about that in Exodus 13. It involves paying five shekels to the church. Luke doesn't mention this portion of the purification, okay, but this is something that Mary and Joseph would have done because they were... Um, The law is mentioned like five or six times in this short passage we read. Mary and Joseph were humble and God-fearing people, and they loved the law. They would have followed the law, even though Luke doesn't mention it. They would redeem their firstborn son, as the law says. This is important because um, 
The firstborn belonged to God, whether it was the firstborn goat, the firstborn uh, lamb, the firstborn cow, the firstborn of your produce, okay, or the firstborn of your family, it belonged to God. And you were to take your firstborn and go to the temple and pay a redemption price so that you would always remember, listen, God is my king and he owns everything, the best of everything that I have. And to help us remember that, we go and we redeem back our child or you pay the redemption price and you go, I'm redeeming back from the Lord. I remember this is something God gave me. He has ownership over. I have responsibility to steward this. And so you pay a redemption price for your child. That would have been done. The third thing that would have been done, in addition to Mary's purification and the redemption of the firstborn, is the consecration of the firstborn. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 1. This consecration would have happened 40 days after Jesus' birth. Seven days after birth would be the circumcision. 33 days after circumcision would be this purification. Okay, So we are just slightly a month old, baby Jesus, month and, and a couple, couple days, maybe a month and a half. Okay? They would go down after this 40 days, technically go up to the temple, and they would go through this process of purification and redemption and consecration. Okay? And the law is mentioned five or six times, and so we can understand that Mary and Joseph truly wanted to be faithful to God in every single circumstance in their life. It says, it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens up the womb will be called holy to the Lord. And you are to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You know the law actually says that you're supposed to give a lamb as a sacrifice. Mary and Joseph only gave a turtle dove or perhaps two young pigeons. Um, There is a clause in the law for people who are too poor to afford a lamb at sacrifice. They still need to offer a sacrifice, but they don't have the money to pay for the sacrificial animal. Mary and Joseph, like dirt poor, okay? They're absolutely poorest of poor, born in a stable kind of poor, young teenage family kind of poor, um, very poor, had no money for offering, had no money for sacrifice, probably used all their money to redeem their firstborn son, couldn't afford the sacrificial lamb. There's a clause in the law for that, and it says instead of a... Lamb, you can offer, if you can't afford, you can offer two turtle doves or a young pigeon, which could, two could be bought for a penny. Okay? And so Mary and Joseph gave the poor man's offering uh, because they were too poor to afford regular sacrifices, which tells us the wise men had not yet visited Mary and Joseph yet. Forty days old, and we know the wise men had not yet visited Mary and Joseph. So we get a little bit sense of the timeline here. So they offered a dove as a sin offering for the purification And here's what it demonstrated. Mary knew she needed a savior. Mary offered a a sacrifice to God saying, please forgive my sins. Please accept this uh, poor man's offering because I can't afford anything else. Because I need forgiveness from my sins to be pure before you. She recognized that she needed forgiveness. She was the one who gave birth to the savior. And yet humbly she knew she was the one who needed the savior. Here's what this teaches us. Ultimately, it's not the size of the gift to God that matters. It's the heart of the worshiper and the degree of the sacrifice that determines whether or not one's gift is appropriate in the sight of God. So, side question to ask yourself. What sacrifices are you offering God to thank him for your Savior? 
How are you humbly coming before him and laying all that you have before him and saying, I recognize I need a savior. This might be all I have to offer you, the broken shards of my life. Could you take it? Because you take a poor man's offering and that's all the poor man's offering I've got for you. God will receive that and love that and work with that. Verse 25. Now in uh, Jerusalem, there was a man, his name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning... He had read all of the Old Testament scriptures. He had read all of the hashtag gospel according to, even though he wouldn't have called it that. And he would have known that there was a Messiah coming. He was a faithful man of the Lord. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. You don't see that phrase used with people very many times in the Old Testament unless something incredibly significant is going to occur. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen Christ face to face. See, Israel was looking for salvation. All of the nation of Israel wanted salvation, but they wanted salvation from political enemies. They wanted David's throne to be restored and have this great king that would sit on a throne and defend them and protect them from outlying nations politically. Simeon, on the other hand, was looking for the salvation of the soul. He was looking for the Messiah, not the king that would sit on the throne earthly, but the king that would sit on the throne heavenly. And we don't know at what point in his life God would, uh, had come to him and said, Hey, Simeon, I want you to look forward to this moment where you're going to see the Savior. But Scripture says he was devout and righteous and waiting. And we kind of get the idea that an old man waited a long time, devout and righteous, waiting for that moment, waiting for Christmas so that he could see his salvation face to face. Luke used the phrase, the Holy Spirit was upon him to let us know that the testimony that Simeon was about to give regarding the person and the work of Jesus It was absolutely reliable. Shelly, could you grab me a cup of water or something? (coughs) It says this in verse 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple. So God's Holy Spirit led him to the temple at the exact moment that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were coming to do their purification. This busy time for temple. This is like... Um, one of the busiest seasons of the temple. It would have been one of the more crowded days to go. Why you would go on the most crowded day just to hang out, you wouldn't, okay? Um, So Simeon was led there by the Holy Spirit at that specific moment to see baby Jesus because it was a promise that God was keeping to him. Um, When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. Deuteronomy 7 says this, Oh, that's nice. Ah. Deuteronomy 7 says this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, and he is a faithful God, and he keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations, which basically in God speak means forever, okay? To a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. Faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. So here's the idea. When God makes you a promise, he is going to keep your promise. There is nothing that is going to undo that promise. 
God sustains his word with his word. He is in itself the very keeping of his own promise. He is very reliable. And so he kept this promise to Simeon, and Simeon offers this beautiful blessing to God, thanking him for fulfilling the promise to him personally. It's not just that he is going to be saved from his sins, but the promise is very personal. You will hold the Messiah. He had seen the salvation promise that God had made to Adam and Eve. See, he got to hold the proto-evangelon, the first gospel, the one that was spoken about so many generations ago. He got to go, coochie-coochie-coo, to baby Jesus, okay? And that was a very special moment for this very old man who had waited so long. But the salvation promise, it wasn't just for Simeon. It wasn't just, hey, Simeon, you get to have Jesus, and really nobody else gets to have Jesus. Simeon says these great things about Jesus. And he says this, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, i.e., my bucket list is complete. Okay? I can die now, whether I die immediately or whether you give me 10 more years. It doesn't really matter. The promise is fulfilled. Nothing else matters to me in this life. I have seen my Savior. My eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared it in the presence of all people. This promise was enacted in the presence of a great number of people. And this is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, meaning this is not just for the Jewish people. This proto-evangelon, this first gospel, this Jesus, as he's saying, in the temple in front of good Jewish people. This is not just for you, God people. This is for all the people of the people of the world. This is for everybody. This is for the glory of God and the people of Israel and all of the Gentiles. This is no ordinary baby. This is a baby who is God, who came to earth in the flesh. And we would call this the incarnation, right? In carn, in flesh. Um, a child wrapped in flesh came God to the earth. And Mary and Joseph, they marveled about this. This is the second or third time that Mary and Joseph, in a month and a half, have just kind of stood back and marveled at what was being said about their baby child. Behold, he continued, this child is appointed for the rising and the fall of many. Imagine if you bring your child in for a dedication and and the pastor is holding your child and, um, and you want good words being spoken over your child and beautiful prayers of blessing. But imagine this old man full of the Holy Spirit picks up your child and he says this, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. It's a cute little child you got there. (laughs) It's kind of a heavy proclamation that he makes. It's a beautiful proclamation. He'll be a light to the Gentiles. He will draw people to himself. He will forgive the sins of the world. But he will do that because he will be the fall and the rising of many. He expresses three things about the coming life and ministry of Jesus that are important. One, he's appointed for the rising and the fall of many. We read in the Beatitudes, right? The meek and the humble will be exalted. We read in the Psalms and the Proverbs, those who are prideful will fall. Before Jesus Our heart status is revealed, okay? Those who are humble will be raised. Those who are prideful will fall. And the only way to stand before Jesus is to kneel in submission before him. 
He is a sign that will be opposed, is what Simeon said. In Isaiah, it says this. Another hashtag gospel according to. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. That's pretty gospelly in the Old Testament. He is a sign, but he will also be opposed. Every day, every ministry, everything that he does, the people will come against him. They will oppose him, and ultimately, they will crucify him on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. He will be opposed. And that's why that little uh, thing in parentheses is there. It's kind of like, a Mary, this is going to hurt you. Because Jesus will be pierced for the sins of the world. As a mother, your heart will be pierced because you are going to watch your son endure great and horrible things. But all of this will be done so that the hearts of men will be revealed. It will be revealed through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He is the right judge on a specific day unknown in the future. There will be a judgment. And the baby that Simeon was holding is the one that will have grown up to have all authority and all righteousness to judge the hearts of all mankind. To say less. Yes, you have received the promise that I have made. Come on in and enter into rest. Or no, you rejected the promise. You wanted nothing to do with me. And so, depart from me. He is the one that will get to say that. That is what Simeon is saying. He is a good, generous king who wants all people to love and follow him. Gentiles and Jews alike. But ultimately, there will come a day in judgment where he will judge the living and the dead. See, Christmas is about this promise that God made to the world. It started in Genesis, and then it worked its way down through history. It's kind of this theme woven throughout all of Scripture. And then he made this promise personal to one man named Simeon, who waited a lifetime to glimpse the salvation of his own soul and the promise of the salvation for the world. And upon seeing Jesus, he said, yeah, I can die a happy man. Nothing else matters because I've seen my Jesus. But that promise wasn't just for Simeon, and it wasn't just for the folks that were alive that day. That promise is for us as well. See, today we are recipients of the same promise. And unlike Simeon, we don't have to wait a lifetime to experience the joy of being with Jesus. Some of us do. Our culture says we've got time. But we don't have time. We don't know if we have time. Simeon knew he had time. Simeon knew his life would not end until he held baby Jesus. We don't have that virtue. Jesus has been given to the world and the promise is ours right here and right now. We can take a hold of it in this moment. We don't need to wait a lifetime. Some people receive Christ on their deathbed. It's a beautiful and glorious thing that they do. But they have missed a whole lifetime of serving and loving God and the blessings that come with that. You know, we can take hold of the promise the same way Simeon took hold of baby Jesus. We can just reach out and see and receive Jesus just like he did. And Simeon's story asks us one big question and implies another. If God's promise is for you, and he is actively and continually offering you salvation, have you received that promise in your life? Have you believed that there is a God who loves you, 
who saw the separation between you and him that sin caused, that said, I don't like that. I want to fix that. I want all of that to be wrapped up in my arms and mended. I want to offer you forgiveness. I want to call you family. I want to work with you in your life so that you can live a holy and pleasing life, so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, unlike Simeon, we don't have to wait to receive that. We can receive that here and now. The implication is this. If you are a living testimony of this promise, if you believe that Christ, the Christ child, was the one who was born to live a sinless life and die on the cross for your sins and be raised again to give you eternal life, um, then you know its validity, and you know what the love of God means for your own life. You know what he has done for you in your life. And like I told the kids in Sunday school this morning, you are not to be a bump on a log. You are to be motivated to be like Simeon and to proclaim out loud the promise of God to all who will hear it. And what better time than Christmas to proclaim this good news so here's a little exercise for you. Um, take, take in a moment, close your eyes, okay? Picture someone that you think needs that promise in their life. Take that moment, get their face in your mind, okay? Y'all got their face in your mind? <clears throat> now, if you have their phone number in your cell phone, I want you to take your cell phone out And I want you to text them something along the lines of, hey, I was just thinking about you. I'd love to invite you to the Christmas service we're having Christmas Eve. Something very simple. Be real to who you are. Use your own language. And do it right now. Take your phone out. Invite them to the Christmas Eve service. If you do not have a phone or do not have their number, that's okay. We've got invite cards up here. And right now, you can come forward and you can grab an invite card. And you can purpose to give it to them this week. If you do not live near this person and they are not here, you can go to the back wall and you can grab a prayer card and you can write their name on it and you can ask God to intercede in their life this Christmas. You can put it on the prayer wall. You can pray for them. We will pray for them. And you can also just mention, hey, God loves you. Can I tell you about my hope? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this while you do this, okay? And we're going to just take a moment in the service to do this. So you all should either be texting or going to the prayer wall or getting a prayer card. It's acceptable to do this. This is good and holy. Okay? Mine is sent, so hopefully I get a response. That would be most excellent, wouldn't it? Um, See, the thing is, we have an obligation to share the gospel. told my kids this morning in Sunday school, it's not just 
that we get saved so we can be saved. I had to work with them on that one a little bit because while they instinctively knew the Proto-Evangelon was in Genesis chapter 3, um, what they struggled with was, I'm, why did God save me? That's a really good question. You wrestled with that one? Why did God save me? Is it so that I can go to heaven? Is that it? Is that the end result? Is, is that the only reason we believe in Jesus after we're saved? That's it? We go to heaven? And, and there has to be more. And there is more. Scripture says we are saved for his glory, yes, and to salvation, but also to do good works and to be proclaimers of the gospel so that other people might come to know the joy that we get to experience in the kingdom of God. What better time than Christmas to do this? Because statistically speaking, if someone who doesn't go to church is going to go to church, it's going to be at Christmas or it's going to be at Easter. Leverage that and see if you can get some folks to come to the Christmas Eve service and hear a great message. So you've sent the text message. You've put the names, hopefully, on prayer cards that will end up on the wall. You've taken invite cards. You will be faithful to follow through with that this week. We're going to pray for all of those invites we've just sent out and will send out. And then we're going to sing some more worship songs this morning to King Jesus, who came and wrapped himself in flesh so that he could die for our sins and be raised from the dead and grant to us eternal life. Father, um, <clears throat> If we could have written our own version of how to save ourselves, it clearly would have not been what you've done. Our version would have been something distinctly different. Not as all-encompassing, not as well thought out, not as, not as inclusive. My version of salvation probably would have included people I don't like. Your version of salvation includes the people that have wounded me, the people that I don't like, the people that I've wounded. Lord, your hope is that every single person on the face of this planet who has ever lived and ever will live would come to know who you are. And the way you work that out was to come to earth, to wrap yourself in flesh, to call yourself Emmanuel, God with us, and to give us a hope that regardless of where we've been and what we've done, you would provide a way. You would provide a hope. And you promised it to us in Genesis. To our forefathers, the first time they sinned, you applied a salve that said, this is going to heal Take some time. We'll work it out together. This soul wound will heal. And it will not be forever. And there will be hope. And his name will be called Emmanuel. And you'll know him when he comes, born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And you'll know him when he proclaims a gospel of repentance and the kingdom at hand. And you'll know him when he's opposed and he dies on the cross. And you'll know him when he raises from the dead and, and, and lives in glory and rules and reigns. That's the Jesus we worship. That's the Emmanuel that we worship. That's the Jesus that we worship at Christmas. The risen Savior of our souls. Lord, we're thankful.
but that's the plan you enacted for us. That's the promise that you gave to us. We take hold of it this morning, Father. We grab a hold of that promise and we'll run with it for the rest of our lives because we know what you promise you're faithful to do. We love you, God. We sing your praises this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go, knowing that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. The promise is yours, so receive it. Go in peace, Merry Christmas, and see you Christmas Eve. Amen? Amen. Amen.